Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Families begin burying victims of the Texas school shooting while the school district police chief, who was reportedly in charge of the response, is sworn in as a city council member. The Supreme Court blocks a Texas anti-censorship law. Social media giants are calling the law unconstitutional and an attack on the First Amendment. The Golden State's primary elections are next week, and the race for California's Senate seat is heating up. In a free-for-all jungle primary system, the incumbent senator is facing increasing criticism from his opponents. A medical freedom nonprofit is calling for an end to vaccine testing on young children. We hear concerns from one of the organization's advisory board members on how the North Carolina hospital is carrying out its trial. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has declared a state of disaster in Uvalde. It'll fast-track resources to help the community as families begin burying the victims of the elementary school attack. And today's Jessica Beatty has the latest. The first funerals for the victims of the mass school shooting in Texas were held Tuesday for two 10-year-old girls. A week after a gunman stormed Robb Elementary, killing 19 students and two teachers. Hundreds turned out to remember fourth grader Mary Jo Garza. The little girl who loved to draw had just received a cell phone for her birthday. A friend told her dad that Mary tried to use the phone to call police during the assault. Maite Rodriguez was also laid to rest. According to her cousin, classmates said she was brave and told other students where to hide before the gunman turned on her. Governor Abbott says the funeral expenses for every family are being covered at no cost thanks to an anonymous donor. And a family-run company has made custom caskets for 19 of the victims, capturing their personalities. More funerals will take place over the next two weeks. Meanwhile, the school district's police chief, Pete Arredondo, was sworn in as a city council member Tuesday. He was elected two weeks before the shooting. The formal ceremony was postponed because of the funerals. Chief Arredondo is one of the key figures under scrutiny for the police response. The head of Texas's Department of Public Safety says it was Arredondo who made the decision not to breach the classroom where the gunman was shooting children, believing it was a barricade situation. That wasn't the case, though, as kids inside the school repeatedly called the 911 pleading for help. Arredondo is now facing a Department of Justice review. President Biden says he's meeting with members of Congress on the possibility of gun reform. The president's acknowledged there's little he can do without the support of congressional Republicans. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says Republicans are working to reach a compromise bill to respond to the school shooting, with a focus on mental illness and school safety. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Since the Uvalde school shooting last week, several more threats have been made against schools, sparking concerns of copycat actors. And while authorities determined that some of the reported threats were meant as jokes, one sheriff is showing that no threat or suspect is too small to take seriously. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. A 10-year-old Florida boy has been charged for allegedly threatening to commit a mass shooting at his elementary school in Cape Coral. Despite his young age, officers took his alleged threat seriously. Daniel Isaac Marquez was arrested Saturday and had his mugshot posted online. Lee County Sheriff's Office posted a video to Facebook showing the fifth grader being led off with his hands cuffed behind his back. 
Facebook users overwhelmingly supported the move. Top comments gaining hundreds of likes, saying while the 10-year-old's arrest is unfortunate, it's necessary to teach him a lesson and potentially prevent future shootings. Sheriff Carmine Marcino wrote on Twitter, Right now is not the time to act like a little delinquent. It's not funny. This child made a threat and now he's experiencing real consequences. Another Florida man was arrested for allegedly making an online threat just one day after the youngster. According to Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, 18-year-old Tampa resident Corey Anderson posted a photo with a rifle, handgun and tactical vest along with a caption reading, Hey Siri, directions to the nearest school. After an investigation, it was determined the photos were actually of airsoft guns. In a news release, Sheriff Chad Cronister said this man intentionally instilled fear into our community as a sick joke. Anderson has been charged with making a written or electronic threat to conduct a mass shooting or act of terrorism. And last week, just two days after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, which left 19 students and two teachers dead, law enforcement reported another threat. The Donna Police Department in Texas arrested four males, including two minors, on Thursday. The group was allegedly planning to carry out an attack against an unspecified Donna school. Police charged two 17-year-olds with conspiracy to commit aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Grace Coulter, NTD News. A woman who was shot in the Brooklyn subway shooting in April is suing gunmaker Glock and its Austria-based parent company. The lawsuit by Eileen Stewart is an early test of a 2021 New York state law allowing victims of gun violence to sue gunmakers or dealers for their injuries. Stewart was one of 10 people shot when Frank James allegedly opened fire on a subway. He's accused of using a Glock 9mm handgun to fire at least 33 rounds in a crowded train. James pleaded not guilty to terrorism and gun charges. Stewart had significant gunshot injuries with a bullet fracturing part of her spine. Her attorney says the lawsuit seeks to hold Glock accountable for marketing strategies they say put guns in the hands of those who kill them and maim innocent people. Glock has not yet responded to a request for comment. The Supreme Court voted on Tuesday to temporarily block a Texas law that prevents social media platforms from censoring users. The law is being called unconstitutional by the associations representing major social media platforms. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. The bill was first signed in September 2021 by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. He says it's meant to defend freedom of speech in Texas and stop social media companies from silencing conservative viewpoints and ideas. The state law stops tech platforms from restricting or removing content based on the viewpoint of the user. It also requires platforms to provide ways of appealing decisions if content is removed. After a federal district judge stopped Texas from enforcing the law, a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals reversed that order in early May. An emergency application was then filed by the trade associations representing big tech social media companies. The document says the law would fundamentally transform the business models and services of private websites like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Supreme Court justices voted 5-4 to four in favor of blocking the law. The five justices, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Sonia Sotomayor, and Stephen Breyer, did not explain why they voted to approve the order. Conservative Justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Liberal Justice Alina Kagan voted against granting the order. Alito wrote a dissenting opinion which Thomas and Gorsuch joined. 
The associations representing social media companies say it's an attack on editorial discretion and would force them to spread objectionable viewpoints. The applicants are calling the law an attack on First Amendment rights and say government officials shouldn't force them to carry certain speech. Alito rejected those arguments in his dissent, saying it's unclear if the companies will ultimately win their case under existing law. Alito says the Texas law is groundbreaking as it addresses the power of social media corporations in shaping public discussion on important issues. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A jury in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday found former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman not guilty of lying to the FBI. This was the first courtroom test of special counsel John Durham since he was appointed three years ago. Here are the details. The federal jury on Tuesday found unanimously that Michael Sussman is not guilty after a two-day deliberation and a 10-day trial. Special counsel John Durham had charged Sussman with lying to the government. Mr. Durham, are you going to go after Rodney Joffe after this is over? According to Durham, when Sussman brought derogatory information about then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russia to the FBI before the 2016 election, he said he was not acting on behalf of a client. But Sussman later acknowledged that he was a lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Sussman says he didn't lie to the FBI. I told the truth to the FBI, and the jury rec clearly recognized that with their unanimous verdict today. I'm grateful to the members of the jury for their careful and thoughtful service. Despite being falsely accused, I'm relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in my case. This was the first case brought by Durham. He was appointed during the Trump administration to probe the origins of the Trump-Russia hoax. Durham refused to answer reporter questions coming out of the court, but he said in a written statement, while we are disappointed in the outcome, we respect the jury's decision and thank them for their service. Former Congressman Devin Nunes, who's now the CEO of Trump Media, tells NTD why he thinks the jury ruled this way. I think none of us are surprised that have followed this closely because we've seen just how rotten Washington, D.C. has become. You have a situation there where you have a jury that, from a jury pool that less than 5% voted for Trump, and you had a defense who very successfully painted this as a very political, anti-Trump, uh, issue, you know, calling it a conspiracy theory. Former President Trump responded to the verdict on Truth Social, saying our legal system is corrupt. Our judges and justices are highly partisan, compromised, or just plain scared. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A former advisor to ex-president Donald Trump says he was subpoenaed in the Justice Department's investigation into the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol breach. Peter Navarro was Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy during the Trump administration. He disclosed the subpoena in a lawsuit against members of the House of Representatives. His subpoena would be the first one known to be issued to an official from the Trump administration in the investigation of the breach. Navarro argues it's unconstitutional. In his lawsuit, Navarro says the formation of the House panel was not done properly, which renders the subpoena illegal. He argues that it makes the House contempt vote against him and a Justice Department follow-up document illegitimate. He urged the court to imagine what will happen to Biden and his advisors if the subpoenas are upheld and Republicans win back the White House and the House in 2024. On Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted something most Americans have known for months. She and other top officials were wrong when they downplayed the significance of inflation last year. In 2021, Yellen said inflation posed only a small risk. 
A Treasury spokesperson clarified numerous unforeseen global events have happened since Yellen's comments last year. She was among those who initially framed inflation as a temporary side effect of the economy returning to normal following the pandemic. She admitted Tuesday that she had failed to anticipate how long high inflation would last. I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time didn't fully understand. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has also taken heat for his initial assessment of rising inflation and what some say was a slow response to it. However, the Fed has now promised to swiftly raise interest rates. Earlier this month, it increased rates by half a percentage point for the first time since 2000. The Fed has also signaled further aggressive rate hikes in the months to come. The Golden State's primary elections are coming up. The race for California's U.S. Senate seat is heating up with debates over topics like crime, vaccine mandates, and the border crisis. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. California's primary election will take place on June 7th. The state uses a jungle primary system. It's a free-for-all system that includes all candidates regardless of party affiliation. The top two candidates with the most votes will face each other in November's general election. Democratic Senator Alex Padilla is campaigning in two separate races for the same U.S. Senate seat and is endorsed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and California Governor Gavin Newsom, among others. Newsom appointed Padilla to fill the Senate seat left vacant by Vice President Kamala Harris in 2020. In order to keep that seat for the remainder of his current term ending in 2023, he must defeat seven opponents in a special election. For the next full six-year Senate term, Padilla faces over 20 challengers in the top two primary election. Candidates include six Democrats, 10 Republicans, and four independents. Republican frontrunners in the race are Mike Moiser, Cordy Williams, and John Ellist. Moiser is campaigning on fighting for parental rights, local control of education, and cracking down on crime. Padilla is facing increasing criticism from Republican candidates. He has advocated for immigration reform, lax border security policies, and sanctuary cities. He also pushed to end Title 42 decrease funding for federal immigration enforcement, and increase social safety benefits for illegal aliens in the Biden administration's infrastructure plan. A harsh critic of former President Donald Trump, Padilla calls Trump's border wall racist, offensive, and an expensive failure. Padilla's Republican opponents don't see the enforcement of immigration laws as a racial issue, but instead a legal one, hinging on the rule of law. On the topic of vaccine mandates, Padilla has called for a more aggressive campaign to get school-aged children vaccinated against COVID-19. Padilla has pushed for vote-by-mail ballots, automatic voter registration, same-day registration, online registration, and expanded early voting. California's major cities have seen a sharp rise in crime, drug addiction, and homelessness, issues Padilla has been mostly silent on. Many law enforcement agencies and critics have blamed the policies of progressive district attorneys and criminal justice reforms. Cordy Williams has suggested Congress may need to get the FBI and DEA involved to reduce crime in California. In the gubernatorial race, Newsom is running for re-election after winning a recall election in 2021. He is expected to serve a second and final four-year term. Republican Brian Dalle is being touted as his most prominent opponent. Also up for grabs in the primary are the positions of mayor in Los Angeles and San Jose and district attorney in San Francisco. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
the DOJ may be able to subpoena Texas lawmakers. It's related to the DOJ's and voting rights groups' lawsuits alleging the state's redistricting plans violate the Voting Rights Act. The Supreme Court decided on May 31st to allow a federal court's order compelling three Republican members of the Texas House of Representatives to appear for depositions. The Justice Department and other plaintiffs brought 10 separate lawsuits in an effort to prevent redistricting legislation from moving forward in the Lone Star State. The redistricting took place after the results of the 2020 census were published. The plaintiffs argue that the increase in the population of Texas came mostly from Latino, Black, and Asian residents, but the newly drawn maps dilute their voting strength. The lawmakers claim they do not have to provide evidence in depositions because of the immunity and privileges they enjoy as lawmakers. The application against the deposition was referred to the full Supreme Court. In accordance with its usual practice, the High Court did not provide reasons for its decision not to grant the application. Several national retailers say the low supply of baby formula remains unchanged. At CVS, the shortage is still making it hard to keep formula products on shelves. A company spokesperson says CVS is keeping its three-product purchase limit in place as suppliers continue to struggle. The head of Greisler Supermarkets, a small Connecticut chain, says it could be months before there is any change to the supply on store shelves. Greisler's hasn't gotten any product from the Operation Fly formula shipments that arrived in the U.S. about a week ago. A Kroger spokesperson says the grocery chain is still limiting purchases to four containers per customer. And just ahead, a new terminal for the Long Island Railroad will be open for service by the end of the year. It sits beneath Grand Central Station and will boost LIRR capacity by 40%. We'll have more for you in just a minute here on NTD News. CDC Director Wichelle Walensky warns of a potential rebound in symptoms after taking Pfizer's COVID-19 pill Paxlovid, but she says the symptoms have been milder. Walensky made the comments on CBS News. Dr. Michael Karnas of the VA Medical Center in Boston spoke to CNN Tuesday. He said that people who do experience a rebound may transmit the virus to others, even when outside the usual window for transmission. The CDC says after patients recovered from COVID-19, the rebound occurred between two and eight days later. The agency told CBS that the benefits of taking Paxlovid outweigh the risks of COVID-19, especially for those who are at a high risk of developing severe symptoms. Last week, the agency issued an alert to healthcare providers about the rebound. Pfizer told CBS that it is observing a rebound rate of about 2%. Next, we hear the concerns of a doctor who is part of a nonprofit centered on medical freedom and patient choice. The organization he's with is demanding an end to a Pfizer vaccine trial on children five years old and younger. Please welcome Dr. Bose Revenel, who is an advisory board member for North Carolina Physicians for Freedom. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Bose. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I would like to know, why are you calling in the Atrium Health Levine Children's Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, to end their testing program on young children for the vaccine? The the biggest, uh, the the overview is simply that the risk versus benefit, children, especially young children, are statistically speaking, negligible risk for serious illness, death, or hospitalization from COVID. The current uh, variants of COVID are even milder than the ones for which most of the data is available. 
So it's even more true than before. And the risk then the risk side is unprecedented levels of reports to the VAERS system, Vaccine Adverse Event Recording System. That system has been in place about 30 years. There have been more deaths actually from uh, following the vaccines for COVID and then there have been total deaths for all 70 vaccines combined for 30 years. There have been more than that in the one year of the COVID program. Well, now, so according to the vice chair for research at Levine's Children's Hospital, who's also leading the experiments on children, she says the vaccine has been safe on adults all the way down through school-age children, and now they're testing this on young children to see what the effects are. Do you think that the risks could outweigh the benefits in this one? Because of the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, because of the fact that the risk actually has not been shown to be uh, lower than the benefits for adults, even with children, it's an extraordinary extrapolation. Because in children, the risk is negligible compared to adults of the illness itself. The risk of the vaccines actually have not been shown to be safe. There is. Uh, the idea of in injecting the children six months to five years, there have been no clinical trials. This is an experiment on human beings and using six-month babies up to five years where they have not had any data on safety. So it's, it's in essence a phase one trial uh, in children, the youngest groups for whom the benefit is... Uh, cannot be much because they're not at statistical risk for death or disability. And what are the parents' role in this? Do they have to give permission, I would assume, to have their children be part of this trial? Well, that's the other big problem. Uh, who decides that babies six months old up to children five years get these injections? The uh, These programs like that normally do require parental consent. But I don't believe that the parents are being provided the balanced information. Informed consent is a bedrock of medicine for the last 30, 40 years. And it's really being just completely bypassed in this whole program. And in the case of children six months to five years, the information that's being provided does not convey the uh, limitation of the benefits on the data available, nor does it convey the risk like from the VAERS system. Dr. Bose Revenel of North Carolina Physicians for Freedom, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. On Tuesday, travel industry leaders pressed the Biden administration to end testing requirements for vaccinated international travelers entering the U.S. The push came at a meeting between White House officials and representatives from travel industry groups. Airlines for America and the U.S. Travel Association say the requirement is harming the economy and doesn't match the current threat from COVID-19. Among other things, they pointed out that restrictions on many other businesses have been lifted but remain in effect for travel. They also noted other countries with which they compete have removed their pre-departure testing requirements and reopened their tourism economies. A new Long Island Railroad, or LIRR, terminal is nearing completion below Grand Central Terminal in Madison Avenue. Authorities have named it Grand Central Madison. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced on Tuesday that the Long Island Railroad East Side Access Terminal is on track for completion this December. Well, I'm proud to announce that this new LIR terminal will be called Grand Central Madison. That is the, uh, what we're unveiling here today, our new logo. 
This terminal will allow the LIRR to boost its capacity by 40% and aims to bring 60% more traffic from Long Island into Manhattan during peak hours. It sits directly beneath the current Grand Central Station. But when there's, you're talking about a place as iconic as Grand Central, you can't change that. I mean, this conjures up the images of glory in a time, early 1900s, 1911, 1912, when, when the world was stunned by the majesty of this building itself and how it has expanded and morphed into such a, a critical lifeline for this community and connecting uh, the far reaches of places like Long Island to now to this central core. The project cost $11.1 billion, took 14 years to complete, and was plagued by major cost overruns and delays but the governor promises it will be open for passenger service by the end of the year. This new terminal will divert some Long Island Railroad trains from their current terminus at the overcrowded Pennsylvania station on the west side to Grand Central. It is the largest LIRR expansion in 112 years and the largest passenger rail terminal to be built in the U.S. since the 1950s. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Visitors at a Western Pennsylvania amusement park were stuck upside down after a ride was stopped on Sunday. Kennywood Park staff is investigating a ride stoppage on the Arrow 360. Maintenance staff brought the ride back to its designated rest position and evacuated the riders. Medical staff met with the riders and three of them visited the first aid center as a precaution before being released back into the park. The ride remains closed until the investigation is complete. A nine-year-old girl survived a cougar attack after wandering up a trail with two friends. They were camping in northeastern Washington state. It happened Saturday near Fruitland, Washington. The girl fought back while her friends ran for their lives. Adults rushed to help and found the girl covered in blood. She was soon airlifted to a hospital where she's recovering after surgery from multiple wounds to her head and upper body. Others found the young male cougar and killed it. Fish and Wildlife spokesman Stacy Lehman says cougar attacks are rare. She says Washington State has only seen two fatalities in the last century and that the girl did nothing wrong. Here's a dramatic video from Arizona. Boaters captured the moment a massive rock slide happened. You can see the huge slab of rock crashing into the water below. This video is from Milla Carter, who was spending time on the Lake Powell for Memorial Day with her husband. The very moment that the section of the cliff broke off, Mila's husband sped away for safety. No one was injured in their boat, and she said luckily no one was around. Summer doesn't officially start for a few more weeks, but Memorial Day marks the unofficial beginning of summer weather and fun. But with summer comes the Atlantic hurricane season. It starts Wednesday and ends on November 30th. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is predicting above-average hurricane activity this year. The agency is expecting a likely range of 14 to 21 named storms, with 6 to 10 possibly becoming hurricanes. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, a Turkish drone enables Ukraine to destroy Russian artillery systems and armored vehicles, and it aids Ukraine against Russia's superior military. And the war in Ukraine raises the costs of feed, fuel, and fertilizer for livestock breeders on the Greek island of Naxos, and Graviera cheese is at risk of disappearing. All that and more right here on NTD News.
Turkish drone has enabled Ukraine to destroy Russian artillery systems and armored vehicles. Now the autonomous aircraft is in demand around the world. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. This is the Baykar Defense Firm's Bayraktar TB2 unmanned aircraft system, and its technology is revolutionizing modern warfare. Bayraktar TB2 is doing what it's supposed to do, taking out uh, some of the most advanced anti-aircraft systems and advanced artillery systems and armor vehicles. That, that's what it was designed to do. At least for a time, the drone helped undermine Russia's overwhelming military superiority. Turkey's deployment of the company's Bayraktar TB2 drone has been a major factor in the conflicts in Syria, Iraq, Libya, and most recently, Ukraine. You know, it's an illegal invasion, and uh, so uh, it's helping the honorable defense honorable people of Ukraine defend their country. Russia in May touted its new generation of laser weapons, which it said could destroy drones. But Bayraktar said laser weapons had limited ranges, so they were not effective against the TB2 drones. The laser weapons, they, it's, uh, their ranges are limited. Uh, so it's, you know, if you're you know, if your sensory range and the munition range is longer, uh, so they're not uh, going to be effective. Baykar is working on a new drone, the Bayraktar TB3, which is capable of takeoff and landing on short runway aircraft carriers. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Greek Graviera cheese is at risk of disappearing from supermarket shelves. This as the cost of feed, fuel and fertilizers for livestock breeders continues to rise due to the war in Ukraine. Greek Graviera cheese is one of Naxos Island's most popular products, but breeders are being forced to slaughter their animals. I have started slaughtering the animals that make about 20 kilograms of milk so that I can preserve the ones that make more milk because we cannot feed them because of the high prices of animal feed. Naxian Graviera must be made using only local cows, goats and sheep's milk. And as milk quantities dwindle, so does cheese production. I had dreams when I took over from my father that I would increase the livestock. I would expand the unit, make it more state-of-the-art, and now everything is frozen. I can't do that. And the problems just seem to be adding up. There is a relative shortage in supermarket shelves right now, and that is due to the rise in costs for stock breeders, with the result that livestock has been reduced. More than 300 cows have been slaughtered, and more than 30,000 sheep and goats, and it's continuing. Milk production is down 7 to 8 metric tons a day, and that could reach 10 metric tons a day. A ship full of animal feed imported from Bulgaria is docked in the island's port. But even that is little relief for the farmers, as high transportation costs more than tripled the price of it. Under these conditions, livestock breeding will end on our island. They will end up slaughtering all the animals. The state needs to wake up and stand by the stock breeders. We are disappointed. We are desperate. The conflict in Ukraine and drought has sent global prices for grains, fuel and fertilizer soaring. In Greece, inflation surged to its highest level in 27 years in March. Even if the war ends tomorrow morning, which we hope it does, the consequences of the war will persist for at least another year and a half. 
The Greek government has provided relief to farmers across the country, but they are asking for even more subsidies and tax cuts. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, Top Gun Maverick had a big Memorial Day weekend box office debut despite not playing in China. It represents a trend in films opening successfully despite Chinese bans. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Over Memorial Day weekend, actor Tom Cruise's long-awaited Top Gun Maverick made its global debut and pulled in a projected $151 million in the U.S. That's the biggest opening weekend haul of the star's career. However, the stellar debut is without the Russian and Chinese markets. It seems Paramount isn't planning to show the movie in China. Chinese tech firm Tencent recently withdrew its investment from the film. Insiders say it's afraid of being linked with a move that promotes the American military. Tom Cruise may have pulled off one of the greatest feats of his career. Top Gun Maverick, the long-awaited sequel to his 1986 blockbuster original, opened to a projected $151 million over the four-day Memorial Day weekend in the U.S., making it the highest-grossing film debut of his career and his first to surpass $100 million on an opening weekend. Credit dazzling reviews, loads of nostalgia, and Cruz's return to the cockpit as Navy pilot Pete Maverick Mitchell, the actor telling Reuters the role is truly one he relishes. I have such a passion and love for aviation. We just had a lot of fun. Top Gun Maverick was scheduled to open the summer of 2020 until the health crisis scrambled those plans. Moviegoers who flocked to the original, namely people now over 40, turned out in force, which is impressive given that that demographic has been the most reluctant to return to theaters. Distributor Paramount Pictures hopes the film's strong word of mouth helps attract those not yet born when the original opened 36 years ago. A number of blockbuster films have faced censorship inside China. It largely involves political reasons, where the film's cast or the movie itself conflict with the Communist Party's ideals. Let's take a look at some examples. First, Simu Liu, a budding Hollywood star and the lead in Marvel's Shang-Chi. He took heavy criticism from China after recounting his parents' immigration to Canada in an interview. According to him, they left to seek freedom, and so their son wouldn't grow up under communist rule. Similar to Liu's case, Chloe Zhao is one of the world's most successful Asian women directors, as well as the recipient of both an Academy Award and a Golden Globe Award. According to a Yahoo Finance report, she previously took aim at the regime over, quote, mainland China becoming a land full of lies under the CCP's ruling. The comment led to her movie's exclusion from Chinese theaters. Two of this year's top films, both sequels, are getting similar treatment. Both Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Top Gun Maverick have been iced out in China. Some suspect that's over images that appear in each film. In Doctor Strange 2, a newsstand belonging to the Epoch Times is visible. The newspaper is known for its uncensored coverage of China. In Top Gun 2, a patch featuring the Taiwanese flag appears on Tom Cruise's jacket. But even without the chance to screen in China, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings box office made over $430 million. 
while recently released Doctor Strange 2 and Top Gun 2 are already hitting impressive box office numbers. The shift hints that China's sizable movie market may be less critical for a film's success, compared to its curbs on depictions of freedom and democracy. China fell short on a bold plan to have 10 Pacific nations endorse a sweeping new agreement covering everything from security to fisheries. So what's at stake? We hear more from NTD's Chenny Wu. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is midway through an eight-nation tour of Pacific Islands where Beijing has been trying to tighten alliances. The China-Pacific Island country's common development vision was leaked last week. The plan was meant to cover cooperation across 10 Pacific nations in the fields of free trade, fisheries, security, cyber and maritime mapping, and would have been a significant step forward for the Chinese Communist Party's ambition in the region. Wang stated that the accords would only mean greater harmony, greater justice and greater progress of the whole world. But the deal was shelved Monday after a lack of agreement among the island nations. As always, we put consensus first among our countries throughout uh, any discussion on new regional agreements. Micronesia's president said the agreement could enable China to own and control the region's communications infrastructure, meaning the communist regime could intercept emails and listen in on phone calls. The U.S. and its allies have expressed concerns that Beijing would use the proposed accords to take advantage of and destabilize the region. Also, that the Chinese Communist Party may be seeking a military outpost in the South Pacific, greatly increasing their geopolitical reach in an area of traditional American naval dominance. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. Despite having a small population and economy, each Pacific state represents a vote at international forums such as the United Nations. They also control vast swaths of resource-rich ocean and access to a region with strategic military significance. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the iconic Sydney Opera House gets a $200 million upgrade. The hall's renovation includes upgraded acoustics and accessibility improvements. Find out more after this short break. Parts of Australia's east coast have heralded in a new season with frosty conditions today as residents woke up to a winter wonderland. A cold snap brought strong winds and icy conditions to parts of the country over the past few days. Schools were closed and state emergency services responded to over a thousand calls for help. The heavy snowfall in some areas has allowed at least one ski resort to open a week earlier than anticipated. That is, the Parisher Ski Resort in New South Wales announced its opening Saturday. The Bureau of Meteorology says conditions are expected to ease by Friday. Ever since the Sydney Opera House first opened, there have been complaints about the acoustics of the concert hall. Now, after numerous attempts to fix the problem, a major renovation is nearing completion just in time for a post-COVID revival. After decades of complaints about the acoustics, the sound of builders hard at work is music to the ears of concert fans. 
The showcase music venue is finally moving into the 21st century with a major upgrade to its sound infrastructure. The technology had been from the 1960s. We've brought it up to 2020 standard. We've ensured that this is now world-leading technology. Giant panels, sound diffusers and reflectors have been installed in a revamp that's taken more than two years. When the, the audiences first come into the new concert hall, they'll go, wow, this just feels so warm and fresh. The acoustics weren't the only thing that was outdated. The original design of the Opera House paid little attention to accessibility. One of the key objectives of the console project and the renewal program as a whole is to increase access for those with impaired mobility to all parts of the Opera House. The Sydney Opera House turns 50 next year. The upgrade costs around $200 million. These renovations will ensure audiences can keep enjoying performances here for many years to come. The new acoustics will be put to the test in July, when audiences will hear how the new additions stand up to the rigors of Mahler's Second Symphony. A camera crew got up close to a sizzling hot lava flowing from Italy's Mount Etna. It's Europe's highest and most active volcano. The two-mile-high volcano has roared back into action in recent weeks. It's spewing lava and ash high over the Mediterranean island of Sicily. The Etnawak team traveled 1.7 miles up the volcano to its southeastern crater. That's where most of the eruptions of the last decade have occurred. They said the temperature of the lava reached around 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. So they had to be careful of the high temperatures while getting as close as possible. Etna is located above a Sicilian town. It often erupts but rarely causes damage and is believed to have the longest written record of eruptions than any other volcano. Its first recorded observation goes back to 425 BC. The last major eruption was in 1992. A team of archaeologists have made a new discovery of a network of passageways under a more than 3,000-year-old temple in the Peruvian Andes. The ancient temple is located in the north-central Andes. It was once a religious and administrative center for people across the region. The passageways were found earlier in May. They have features believed to have been built in earlier times than the temple's labyrinthine galleries. Located over 10,000 feet above sea level, at least 35 underground passageways have been found over the years of excavation. They all connect with each other and were built between 1,200 and 200 years B.C. in the foothills of the Andes. The temple was declared a World Heritage Site in 1985. And still to come, Pennsylvania's Happy Flower Lady spreads joy in her community by delivering free flowers, and she wants to spread the happiness to other states as well. More on that in just a minute. Ever wanted to do something to uplift others? Well, we caught up with someone who brightens their community with leftover flowers, gifting them to people from all walks of life. Thank you. This is Patricia Gallagher, also known as the Happy Flower Lady. And it's just something that gives me so much joy every day to pick up these free flowers and be able to bloom smiles everywhere I go. Living in the Philadelphia area, she has been sharing the flowers since 2013. I think this is an amazing, amazing, amazing um, good thing that she's doing for the community. And her goal to make people's day brighter as well as her own. I think as the giver, I have as much joy as somebody that receives the flowers. 
you're down or if you're just waking up, you know, on the wrong side of the bed and you get these flowers, it can really turn your day, you know, to a, a good day. And so think many others. I feel wonderful. I feel good. Give me my flowers while I'm living. You know, I, I enjoy getting. To me, it makes my day. The smallest act of kindness can bring happiness to people. You never know what just one hello may do or a bundle of flowers may do to brighten up someone's day. The Happy Flower Day project collects flowers from shops and events that would normally be thrown out. Then they deliver them to people in need of a smile, all for free. They look beautiful and it's so nice. That's really a nice gesture. They say if you give a girl flowers, she'll remember them forever. It all started with a little help from her family. My daughter gave me the idea to contact different stores and ask them what they do with their surplus or day-old flowers. And once we got that idea, my mother and then her 91-year-old friend Bob, the three of us, every morning we would go around Philadelphia and pass out flowers. Patricia is spreading her seeds on a 13-state tour to show others how to deliver free flowers. They don't have to do it every day, but they can just say, what gift do I have to share to the community? Tens of thousands of bouquets later, Patricia's granddaughters get to come with her. I think you have to teach kids, just like we teach them other things, to teach them the value of thinking of others and generosity. So if you teach children when they're small, then they'll grow up to be adults that are caring and empathetic. But that's not all Patricia does. She is also the author of 31 books. I wrote a book called 150 Ways to Sprinkle Kindness in Your Community. One tip is to fill expired meters along the street so people don't get a ticket. Your heart is so filled when you do these little acts of kindness. And she hopes others can do the same. Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, whenever you can, while you can, for whomever you can. And if everybody in the world did all the good they could, just in their little neck of the woods, we would have a happier, more peaceful world. Focusing on one thing at a time is a healthier way to live. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. How many of us were raised singing the praises of multitasking? that shining beacon of productivity that we're all supposed to aspire to. The truth is that multitasking is bad for our brains. It also turns out that we are simply not designed for it. Most of us spend a large part of every day multitasking. We might be listening to the radio while making breakfast. We could be reading the newspaper while we eat, or we could be scrolling through Instagram while at work. We are routinely doing several things at the same time. Of course, it seems like a great way to be productive by doing many things at once. But what is actually happening is that we are switching our focus from one thing to another. That's because the brain simply can't do more than one thing at a time. In fact, research shows that multitasking reduces our ability to focus, increases levels of stress and causes us to make more mistakes. So how do you break the habit? Scientists have some suggestions for us. The first thing to do is to evaluate all the things you are trying to accomplish and prioritize them. Then simply do the most important one first. Try to allot a specific amount of time to it, like an hour or two before moving on to the next task on your list. Schedule a specific time of the day to do things like checking your email and looking at social media. The same goes for anything else that has a strong pull on your attention. This will allow your mind to relax and to focus on the task at hand. 
Putting cell phones that cause distractions in another room can also help to break the habit of multitasking. Multitasking seems to be a natural byproduct of living in a fast-paced environment. It's also a byproduct of having a wealth of information at our fingertips. Science is discovering that multitasking simply isn't good for us. This may encourage us to get back to just doing one thing at a time with attention and focus. After all, it seems like this is the way we were designed to be. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.